independent media is institutionally paralyzed in Azerbaijan. International executives, they are failing to adjust the uh, systems to the challenges of the fight, fighting corruption in modern world. You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. So, hello and welcome to our most honorable guest, Khadija Ismailova. Uh, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that she is one of the most renowned investigative journalists in the world and, of course, in Azerbaijan, and she got in a lot of trouble for it, and we'll talk about it in more detail today. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, Khadija. Thank you, and honor is mine. Let's set the scene, first of all. Uh, Azerbaijan has one of the worst records when it comes to press freedom. Um, Reporters Without Borders ranked it 168 out of 80. I mean, that's that's quite impressive. And Justice for Journalists Foundation recently released uh, a report that detailed all the abuse that Azerbaijani independent journalists face for doing their work. And the figures were staggering. 194 journalists were attacked virtually and in real life. Uh, they've been harassed, beaten, imprisoned. Do you think that the situation with press freedom in Azerbaijan has been deteriorating over the past year? And if so, then why? Well, yes, uh, Azerbaijan is a, is a country ruled by autocratic regime and it's uh, corrupt. Uh, the, the regime is corrupt and violent. So um, we, um, we have been experiencing limitation of press freedom like since the since always so uh but and it's been deteriorating all the time but yes we are uh in our one in one of our worst periods now uh the we have journalists in prison but the most importantly the most crucially we have um independent media is institutionally paralyzed in azerbaijan so uh, whatever we have for independent media in azerbaijan is either in exile or uh, or uh, working in very small scale and uh, uh, they have to be almost invisible not to be dealt with so that's that's the most crucial problem because we have uh, zero uh, opposition media in print we have zero independent media in print we have a uh, few independent websites that are blocked in the country uh, the the media that is broadcasting or uh, airing some uh, information or uh, distributing some information from exile is also blocked in the country uh, most of the international news media channels are also blocked including the OCCRP website which I'm working for uh, they they are blocked inside the country and uh, we are not even talking about the broadcast media because broadcast media is fully controlled by the government and it doesn't matter whether it's um, whether it's uh, private or uh, or the state funded it's all 
fully controlled by the government, either through the relatives of the ruling family or the uh, or the front man uh, of the ruling family. So, what the uh, what the state funded or government funded, government controlled media does, it uh, basically it is engaged in uh, smearing campaigns again in, against independent minds or opposition uh, people, uh, parties and uh, figures. So. Uh, so they are using the media controlled by them as mouthpieces to, as a tool of punishment against those who dare to criticize. Also, we have like few journalists in prison. Some of them have been arrested, uh, but have been given have been arrested for the crime, but have been given harsher sentences because they are critical. Uh, some of them are arrested, like Pulad Aslanov had been arrested uh, just for daring to criticize or not be n- refusing to be controlled by the government. So this is this is basically the the main picture of Azerbaijani media. But also there are other uh, hardships of being of in the neighborhood of Russia, being in the front line, uh, like being a front line country, like lately, one of the most uh, devastating news was uh, losing two colleagues in landmine blast uh, in Karabakh. And uh, the the area is not safe for journalists and uh, there are two aspects here one of them is that uh, the conflict itself is remaining unsolved until armenia uh, and azerbaijan agree to stop any hostilities and armenia gives the uh, the maps of contaminated areas the areas contaminated with landmines uh, the other uh, issue is that the government of Azerbaijan is basically does not do enough of, uh, efforts, does not make enough efforts to train journalists to work for the safety uh, measures, to work and uh, to work in the front lines, and basically does not allow international organizations to do that. Uh, and obviously, you've been the target of the regime yourself. Um, I still remember the video of after you're being released. I'll, you know, I'll go back in time um, and seeing your pictures after just following a case so closely. You know, it felt like it was my friend coming out to enjoy freedom for your investigations into Ilham Aliyev's family and his entourage. Uh, you faced persecution. Uh, You were handed a seven-year sentence back in 2015, uh, of which you spent one and a half year in the prison. And then you're banned from traveling outside as well. And the whole world followed your case. Um, I think it was a, it was just such a powerful and big campaign that just demonstrated that, you know, if we all band together, we can really make, um, make a difference. But the facts are still there, you know, that you have this sentence that's on your permanent record. After you came out of prison and went back home and carried on your work, how did it feel? Did did you notice that you're doing a different kind of work? Did it feel very different than before all of this had happened to you? Well, there are two things uh, maybe uh, 
maybe I should be grateful to Ilham Aliyev regime for. One thing is that I gained a lot of friends, a friends uh, like people whom I have never even seen. Uh, and uh, I've been receiving a lot of friendly messages during the prison time and afterwards. And uh, like you describe yourself, people uh, whom I've never seen, whom I've never heard of, they've been sympathizing with my case and uh, uh, sending their positive energy and uh, that's that's maybe the thing that I have to be grateful to Ilham Aliyev for, because uh, if there would be no troubles, there would be no uh, no such experiences as well. But yes, of course, uh, both prison and what happened before, then all the persecution. It's not uh, it's not something nice. I wouldn't I wouldn't wish anyone to experience all of this. Uh, also, the second thing is that uh, when I got out of prison, I saw uh, several other journalists, like 100, more than 100 of journalists have been united in the project run by OCCRP, and they've been continuing investigations. And that, that's practice actually that while they were doing it several other journalists started doing investigations like cross-border investigations about uh, the Aliyev's wealth, wealth of the other ministers and uh, now we are seeing and uh, we, we, we see award-winning uh, investigations uh, made jointly by OCCRP authors, including anonymous Azerbaijani journalists who do not sign their stories for safety reasons, but their impact, the, the, the impact of their stories is incredible. Yeah, that's what I find so amazing that uh, people are not deterred by the potential danger of investigative journalism. And, you know, despite all the persecution and harassment, more and more people join this profession, like you said. Um, and I wanted to talk more about the Panama Papers as well, because obviously you've been investigating the Azerbaijani laundromat for many years now, if not decades, and mm -hmm. you've uncovered some very impressive information just showing the extent of Aliyev's family's grip on all the businesses, on all the major money-making businesses across Azerbaijan. And um, when the Panama leaks came out first in 2016 and winning every single journalistic award, uniting journalists from all over the world, it seemed like everything will change. And now, five years later, do you think much has changed since the revelations? Well, actually, my Panama Papers started much earlier. In mm -hmm. 2011, we published first Panama story uh, related to Aliyev companies. And I have to mention here Dan O'Hugan, who uh, scraped the Panama database uh, for common use. And uh, so we journalists could use uh, that scraped database for searching um, the Panama uh, commercial databases for the companies using just search name searching by names or by company name so uh, so many thanks to ethical hackers who do ethical job they are not violating law they work on open databases but they do it searchable and use user friendly for journalists so um so when when this happened we thought we thought that it will be a huge scandal but it wasn't. 
It wasn't. Before that, there were uh, like uh, BVI papers uh, came out and some uh, companies had been revealed back then. Then um, there were Panama Papers, then there were Luxembourg Papers, uh, then there were other uh, other uh, databases, like Malta Papers. There were lots of papers, leaks that could change a lot in the world. Well, it didn't. Uh, corruption became more transparent since then. People know more about the corruption. Uh, the world community, the international executives, they are failing to adjust the uh, systems to the challenges of the corruption, to the challenges of the fight, fighting corruption in modern world. So uh, it's now there is another challenge with the Bitcoin uh, support, Bitcoin's use for corrupt purposes. So it's basically the world order. Well, the world is not orderly. Actually, there is no order in the world helping to fight corruption or stop corruption. Or maybe it's designed for hiding it, or maybe it's designed to uh, cover all those crimes. Basically, uh, basically, what we see now, bad guys are uniting together the, uh, in criminal networks like presidents of different countries, govern, government people from different countries, they are uniting in criminal networks. They do uh, a lot to, uh, to create those corrupt, those corrupt schemes. And uh, journalists, law enforcement are lagging behind. They are not powerful enough to stop the law enforcement are not powerful enough to stop or their int intentions are not clear. So we don't see much results of our uh, work. Uh, like after Danske Bank's story, a laundromat investigation, I uh, thought that it, it's the first time I see the real result of my stories. Could you just uh, talk me through the story, if you don't mind? The laundromat investigation is that uh, is. Uh, basically, there were four companies in Azerbaijan, created by Azerbaijanis, who have been money laundering for years through uh, Danske Bank, the, mm -hmm. uh, the bank, uh, the Estonian branch, the Tallinn branch of the Danske Bank. And uh, we saw that there were payments done by politicians to European politicians to silence their criticism in uh, organizations like Council of Europe. Then we saw, according to bank documents, that we saw that uh, some uh, government officials were paying for their uh, for their uh, health care services, education needs for their children using that laundromat scheme. Then we saw that uh, we saw mysterious payments by Russian arm dealer to the son of official who had been negotiating the arm deal between Azerbaijan and Russia. We saw a lot of payments that had no explanation and it was clear money laundering scheme. Uh, in Azerbaijan, of course, no effective 
official investigation had been started. There were a couple small bank workers arrested and uh, they were charged also with the crimes related to Landermat, but but they were not the owners of those money. The, the owners of the money, those who have been laundering their own money, they uh, they have been set aside. Uh, they have not been uh, called for any uh, investigation. Uh, but on the other hand, in Europe, uh, European structure started lots of started uh, investigations against European politicians who received money through that laundromat. They also uh, several members of parliament in Germany. Uh, in Belgium, had lost their seats in Parliament. Uh, they uh, have been investigated, and uh, they're so it's 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 a huge scandal in Europe. And also, the British government made more efforts to bring transparency into uh, unexplained unexplained wealth coming and invested in Great Britain. So uh, as a result, our corrupt officials who are hiding their money in Great Britain now ta are taking the, their money to Dubai and other places where they can hide them better. But we journalists are also working and we uh, work in international networks also trying to bring more um, uh, more expertise from uh, Middle East, Singapore, or other places, where uh, where the which became more popular destinations for corrupt wealth. So I guess that's uh, one of the good outcomes of these uh, transnational corruption scandals that um, they cause the boom in investigative journalism and. I mean, the kind of tactics and techniques used by investigative journalists such as yourself or Bellingcat, they're just amazing. It's more keen to detective work. You know, it's very reassuring seeing that, that you're holding them to account. Well, we are not holding anyone to account. We are journalists and what we do, we just uncover mm. uh, the, the crimes. We, we, we show, we reveal. Mm -hmm. But uh, bringing to account is uh, the job of law enforcement, and it's important that law enforcement come along with this process, and they do their job. They act accordingly. It doesn't happen in the countries like Azerbaijan, but then mm -hmm. there should be some uh, international mechanisms, international law enforcement or sanction measures that would help to clean up a little bit the uh, at least international political structures from these crimes. Also, it's important that all these investigations are being used as a matter of investigation for the international organizations that are fighting corruption. And it would be great if they would initiate sanctioning corrupt officials. The problem is, corrupt official, what, what does he do? He, uh, they deprive their own citizens from the goods of democracy, dem democratic and transparent society. For example, ordinary Azerbaijani that is, does not have access to good education. Ordinary Azerbaijani does not have access to good health care. And the official who deprives him 
of these goods. He enjoys the products of democracy in UK, US, in other European countries. They enjoy all those goods because they have money stolen in the process of depriving their own citizens of this of this uh, ordinary uh, products of democracy so when when so they can enjoy education opportunities investment opportunities healthcare opportunities in the other countries because they have money and the, those money are stolen so so what what we see stealing public money is becoming a cool thing because they don't get punished anywhere they they shake hands with european leaders and officials they become members of the interparliamentary groups they become uh they are welcomed everywhere because they have money it's now it's time to show that stealing something is not cool so these people should not be let in europe they should not be allowed to uh to buy education with their corrupt money for their children if the money is not corrupt let their children study but if they are buying the education with corrupt money that should not be allowed i find it very um, interesting that on the one hand we have these european institutions designed you know to hold governments such as elites to account and on the other hand um, you know you have uh, oligarchs enjoying all the services that countries like the uk or france have to provide you know sending their kids to private boarding schools um, buying up all the flats in Belgravia, using PR agencies that help them clear up their reputation, which is the Azerbaijani elite are quite um, famous for. Uh, but there is something good, of course, still in uh, in Europe. It's it's uh, you know still these democratic in institutions that that are still upholding certain values. Um, and in uh, 2020, European Court of Human Rights ruled that your rights have been violated um, when you were arrested. And um, they gave you a compensation. Of course, your freedom and the time that you spend in prison, it can be compensated. But when you received that ruling, how did that make you feel? Well, that was the fourth ruling that I... Uh yeah, fourth yeah. case that I won of in course. the European Court of Human Rights. And uh, in all of them, European Court of Human Rights have ruled in my favor, but but there are also some uh, shortcomings in that uh, measures as well, because yes, they do order Azerbaijani government to pay compensation and Azerbaijani government pays it like uh, very late and with delays and so on. but okay, they pay the compensation, but it's not about compensation. Uh, the general measures Azerbaijani government refuses to fulfill, uh, they, ha they have to also restore the justice. It's not just about compensation. I need my name to be cleared from the records. And I need uh, those who ruled against my freedom unlawfully, they should be brought to justice. This has to happen. And Azerbaijani government doesn't do that.
That's a problem. So European Court of Human Rights has lots of cases. Azerbaijan is one of the most uh, complaining countries, maybe, maybe leader per capita. Why? Because all these rulings, they do not affect the inter internal justice system. They do not reform internal justice system in order to reduce the number of these cases. And they don't stop political persecution using judges and uh, using the law enforcement because they just pay and that's it. So I think it's important that uh, it's important that the European institutions follow up on the decisions mm -hmm. and they look. And this is happening right now till the July 31st. Azerbaijani government has given the time to explain what they are going to do in order to comply with general measures, including apply to Supreme Court and uh, overrule or the the all previous decisions about me my arrest well that should be built on so in all my cases when the government you know the system in european court of human rights they start communication they also offer settlement to both sides and so far i have rejected every single settlement offer because I want government of Azerbaijan to take a lesson from what they are doing, to admit that there was a violation, and then to take a lesson. And I will continue doing so unless Azerbaijani government will start taking lesson from what they are doing. Khadija, that's, I feel like it's a very strong and powerful note to end our interview on. Thank you so much for finding time for this interview. I really appreciate it. And I've been meaning personally to talk to you and to meet you for such a long time. Thank you very much. I have to say it would be much more difficult. Like, I love my profession. Mm -hmm. I love what I do. But again, it would be much more difficult without support of so many journalist organizations, without the networks that are supporting free press. It would be very difficult without their support and their vocal advocacy mm -hmm. for freedom of the press worldwide. And I want to thank all of them. And also, want, I want to thank our readers who appreciate and thus keep us, keep our spirit high.